In a year characterized by economic dislocation, ecological catastrophe, Western military interventions, and the specter of another Middle East war, what comprised the major news stories of 2013? What were the significant events and developments ignored or even censored by mainstream media? What were the major stories of the past year affecting the world's indigenous peoples? And why is it that critical headlines relating to GMOs, indigenous resistance struggles, Western support for terrorist groups, nuclear pollution from Fukushima, and secretive trade agreements like the TPP get systematically ignored by media in the first place? As we start the new year, the Global Research News Hour will review these subjects with John Aniwanika Shurto of Intercontinental Cry magazine, Dr. Andy Lee Roth of Project Censored, and Professor Michelle Chosodovsky of the Center for Research on Globalization. On this week's program, 2013, a review of the most censored stories of the year. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of January 3rd, 2014. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We can also now be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Over 12 years into the so-called global war on terror, the United States appears to be striking terror into the hearts of the rest of the world. In their annual end-of-year survey, Wind Gallup International found that the United States is considered the number one greatest threat to peace in the world today by people across the globe. The BBC explains that the U.S. was deemed a threat by geopolitical allies as well as foes, including a significant portion of U.S. society. Predictable in some areas, the Middle East and North America, but less so in others, Eastern Europe's 32% figure may be heavily influenced by Russia and Ukraine, but across most of Western Europe, there are also lots of figures in the high teens. That's from the article, Greatest Threat to World Peace, the United States of America, by Sarah Lazar, posted January 1st, originally appearing at commondreams.org. Last June, Glenn Greenwald at The Guardian revealed that Edward Snowden was the NSA insider behind one of the most significant leaks in U.S. political history. Snowden explained his motivations through Greenwald by saying, quote, There are more important things than money. Harming people isn't my goal. Unquote. Such altruistic motivations were welcome news at the time have come into question recently given that only a tiny fraction of the documents have been released nearly a year after Snowden started working with Greenwald. Perhaps more importantly, billionaire Pierre Omidyar is funding Greenwald's slow release of those documents. It is worth noting that 
Omidyar's PayPal Corporation has links to the NSA. That's from the article, Inconsistencies and Unanswered Questions, The Risks of Trusting the Snowden Story, by Kevin Ryan, posted January 1st, originally published at digwithin.net. The State of Israel is ready for another war in Gaza, following incidents in the Israeli-Gaza borders where it claims that numerous rockets were fired from the Gaza by terrorist groups, according to the Times of Israel. Israel will launch strikes deep into Gaza if new peace talks fail when the U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry, who is scheduled to arrive this week. As tensions rise in the Middle East with Iran's nuclear program and the continuing civil war in Syria, and now Lebanon's southern border with Hezbollah's military capabilities, Israel is only interested in weakening Gaza's militants. I expect the next incursion into Gaza will be more severe, resulting in more Palestinian and Israeli casualties. Israel says it is defending their citizens. But aren't the Palestinians defending their future from a state that seeks to dominate them? That's from the article, Israel, Ready to Invade Gaza, Planned Attack Would Exact a Heavy Toll, by Timothy Alexander Guzman, posted January 1st, originally published at Silent Crow News. Not only have democratic elections failed to enhance the quality of life and standard of living in numerous African countries and elsewhere, Kenya is a country in which democratic elections in December 2007 unleashed horrendous inter-ethnic slaughter and violent destabilization in a country that had hitherto been a model of stability and economic and social development for Africa and the developing world. How can the sudden eruption of such clan and tribal warfare be explained in a country that had, for decades, not undergone such violent inter-ethnic conflict and destabilization. Recently, a highly placed diplomatic source accredited to the United Nations observed a pattern emerging in African countries where Western NGOs with links to U.S. intelligence were based and operating. Previously non-existent inter-ethnic violence suddenly erupted, and this phenomenon was occurring in even the most stable countries. One of these Western NGOs in particular was based and operating in Kenya since 2003, a full four years before the sudden eruption of inter-ethnic warfare and violent destabilization that followed the December 2007 democratic elections. Recalling that Russian President Putin prohibited U.S. aid and particular Western NGOs from operating in Russia, one can only conclude that he was trying to spare Russia from the fate observed in too many African countries and elsewhere. As from the article, The Destabilization of Africa, a Machiavellian Intrigue of Colossal Proportions by Carla Shea, posted January 1st. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. The online magazine Intercontinental Cry 
provides a unique service to readers in that it regularly reports on indigenous people's struggles across the planet with local, municipal, and federal governments, as well as corporations, private interest groups, police and military forces, paramilitary organizations, and international institutions like the World Bank. IC frequently picks up on stories missed by other media, including the independent media. John Anewanika Shirto is the driving force behind Intercontinental Cry. He's an internationally recognized editor and publisher and award-winning journalist. He's based in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and he's here to talk about the year 2013 in Indigenous news and struggle, some of the stories uh, missed by other media, and uh, how things are looking moving forward. So, uh, John Shirto, Happy New Year. Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, thanks for the intro, and Happy New Year to you and to all our uh, listeners as well. You wrote an article just a, you know, a few days ago uh, called Neglected and Ignored, 10 Major Stories That Should Have Made More Headlines in 2013. Do you, do you want to talk about a, a few of those stories? Yes. Um, well, one of the most one of the most disturbing, actually, I could probably say that a thousand times here, but is the situation with uh, human safaris in the Andaman and Nicobar Islands, which is a Union territory of India. Uh, yeah, and that's so to the a, to the east of uh, India. Yeah, in the uh, Bay of Bengal. Okay. And uh, the situation there has been going on for quite some time now where uh, the, one of the indigenous peoples on the island, known as the uh, Jarawa people, uh, are being uh, treated like zoo animals uh, by tourists, um, individuals uh, from Britain and from India and, and elsewhere, um, actually pay money to go and visit the Jarawa um, and treat them um, essentially like, uh, like monkeys at a zoo, uh, where, you know, people... Throw, give, give food and, and promises of, of clothing or, or even some kind of knickknack um, in exchange for the Jarawa to perform for them. Um, you know, like, like uh, the fact that this doesn't get much coverage in, in North America is uh, uh, remarkably disturbing. Um, and the, 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 it does actually get a lot of attention in India nowadays and in the UK thanks to Survival International who has a dedicated campaign to this. Um, and the, the, there was some uh, positive developments in, uh, in, 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 in 2013 where the uh, courts were pressured into um, banning tourists from this major road that the, tour, that, that the uh, tourist and tourist industry uses um, to access the, uh, the Jarawa territory. Um, but then just four months, three months after the, um, uh, the, the, this great ruling came down, the courts reversed the decision, opened up the road again, uh, giving everybody free access to to go to go you know go meet the Jarawa, and uh, even more disturbing, the court point blank asked authorities on the island if they wanted to assimilate um, the the Jarawa people, and this has been an an, an, an issue for quite some time now. Um, fortunately, the the authorities on the island have an explicit policy or law that um, um, dictates that they won't try to assimilate them. But the fact that the court you know, hey, you want to you want to assimilate these people? <laughs> you know, it's just shocking. Um, but even more shocking again is the fact that nobody in North America covered this. Um, you know, there was there was a video uploaded online to to the Observer and and, and reposted on uh, on the Guardian, which showed just how, how just how the drawa are being treated. You know, like there's corrupt police officers who are taking payments and 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 taking these people to go meet the drawa. 
um, you know, women and children um, being pressured into into performing like this is uh, one of the most shocking and degrading examples of colonialism in the world today. And the fact that nobody is uh, covering this in, in, in North America is, is, uh, is beyond bizarre. You know, like this should be uh, a priority for everybody. Um, just, you know, just because it's it's so disturbing. I noticed an, another story uh, has to do with a, a an anti-tribal sovereignty group, uh, CIRA. Yeah, Citizens for Equal Rights Alliance. And this, this too, uh, the fact that this received no attention in, in North America uh, is perhaps even more disturbing. Um, this, this organization, CIRA, is the most prominent anti quote-unquote anti-Indian organization in, in the United States. Um, and they just organized uh, four major conferences uh, in Massachusetts, New York, California, and Washington dedicated to teaching American citizens how to take down tribal governments. When we talk about CIRA, we're not talking about you know, a couple Gary McHales sitting on their soapbox. You know, we're talking about a network of 30,000 people, a uh, heavily well-funded organization that's you know, sponsored openly and you know, proudly by the Tea Party, who has ties to the Wise Use Movement, which is a, a massive um, private property rights anti-environmentalist um, organization in the U.S. that uh, goes back to the 80s and 90s. Um, and, you know, there are some of their members, such as a guy named Skip Richards, who's a private property rights activist in um, in uh, Bellingham, Washington, uh, who has uh, who's known for recruiting Christian patriot militias. Um, you know, they, so this is who we're talking about, and, and these people just organized four major conferences in in in, in the U.S. and nobody noticed. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, you know, uh, other than I see, the only attention that this really received was from the um, Cascadia Weekly and the Institute for Research and Education on Human Rights, who uh, also published uh, an in-depth piece on the uh, on the conference and just who these people are. Um, but it's it's very disturbing um, that these people were, were were just you know able to um, you know take their first steps in building a massive anti-tribal sovereignty movement in the U.S. and you know like where was Occupy? Um, you know, never mind the media. I like I I understand why the mainstream media didn't cover this. Uh, you know because they don't care, or or maybe they wanted to go forward. I don't know. But um, you know nobody in the grassroots paid attention. The, the, the Yumi themselves organized a protest um, with a few allies uh, using the, under the Idle More Idle No More banner, um, but it just never got attention. Um, and, and, and even now, they're probably you know organizing a, a, a 10-year strategic plan to um, take on um, you know water rights and fishing rights, specifically in those uh, regions that I mentioned: California, Washington, New York, and Massachusetts. As well as um, uh, gambling and uh, you know any kind of um, um, tribal strength in, in, in the region, and um, nobody else is, uh, and you know without challenge, without anybody saying anything. Um, mm. Yeah, it's 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 very disturbing to me, uh, you know. And, and these people are going to continue mobilizing with their money, with their with with their massive support. Um, from from the uh, the entire spectrum of the right wing, um, and if you know if, if, if there's not going to be any any resistance to this, uh, well then you know the the results are are going to be obvious. Uh, my my um, 
uh, Jay Tabor, uh, who's who I mentioned earlier, who's written extensively about this and who's been researching the likes of the wise youth movement and you know Christian uh, patriot militarism and domestic terrorism in the U.S. for uh, for, for at least 20 years, refers to Sira as the um, uh, Ku Klux Klan of Indian Country. Yeah, I was just thinking about you know that sort of a KKK kind of a yes, the, popular, the the ethic, the plan, and, and they are actively promoting. Uh, fomenting anti-native sentiment in the U.S. That's, that's the underlying layer of their um, above this the, this other layer that they're promoting of, of benevolence and, and 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 righteousness, which is you know part of their plan. You you also uh, wrote a a piece that talked about uh, 25 uh, stories of resilience that also are, are not getting enough attention. Just sort of maybe put a more positive spin on the conversation. Is there a, a story or two that you'd like to, to bring up? Well, certainly. Well, you know, like, like I said, like, it's not just the, uh, it's not just the intractable situations or the, you know, dangerous developments that, that, that don't get much attention. Um, it, it's also, there's also a lot of positive news that, um, you know, assertions of authority, um, reclamations of land, um, outstanding acts of resistance, um, you know that tend to slip by uh, very often, unfortunately. Uh, and I think uh, one one strong set of of, of examples <coughs> are the um, the efforts of of a few First Nations in uh, in, in Canada. Um, I, one thing I have noticed over the over the last ten years is that when a uh, that Indigenous peoples, particularly in South and Central America, and also in uh, Southeast Asia, um, draw a specific line. Um, you know, telling corporations to get off their territory or we're going to throw you off. You know, they assert their traditional authority. And in many cases, it works. Um, and I, I've always, you know, kind of hoped to see more of that in Canada. Uh, and, and, and now, fortunately, we are with the, uh, with the uh, Wet'suwet'en, for example, um, who've been, you know, pushing, pushing against um, uh, Enbridge and Friends for, for, for quite some time now. Um, one, and they've fortunately been, been getting a lot of uh, grassroots attention and, and, and media attention as well. Um, but two, two nations that didn't really get much attention this year, last year, was um, the Red Sucker Lake, uh, who delivered a stop work order to Mega Precious Minerals in northern Manitoba. Um, they stated at the time that the company was operating illegally in its traditional territory. Um, you know, and the um, Matthias Cologne Free, uh, First Nation, also in Manitoba, issued a similar uh, stop work order and eviction notice to Hud Bay Mineral and Smelting, uh, who's also quite notorious in um, uh, Guatemala. Um, and, and and just those 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 acts of of of, uh, of authority, um, I find them to be uh, outstandingly beautiful. It's my favorite kind of news to see. You know, nations not not just turning to 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 the court system or whatever to try and get you know some words on a piece of paper that can be changed anytime, but to you know go on the ground, you know, and and challenge them. It's it's beautiful. And you know, the Talton did something similar with Fortune Minerals, which ultimately you know resulted in a in a victory. The Talton, of course, defending um, Clappen Mountain inside the Sacred Headwaters, which is you know which they the Fortune wanted to uh, to exploit. Another strong, strong example of uh, traditional assertions of authority were the uh, Murawari peoples in Australia, who established an interim government, um, preparing for a uh, 
a new form of government that would uh, a representative democracy. Um, that would be um, uh, where you know each of their ancestral family groups would would uh, coalesce into this you know national government. Um, Twenty-seven other indigenous peoples uh, around Australia also turned to the Marawi to learn from their example. So there's this massive nationhood movement group um, movement growing in Australia. Um, it received a, lot, a, a fair amount of attention among activists in Australia, but you know beyond that, um, you know it, it went by almost completely un unnoticed again. Um, another strong assertion of authority just happened a couple weeks ago in, in, in Papua New Guinea. Where a messy villager um, put up a gorgor um, at uh, Nautilus's proposed uh, Solawera One experimental seabed mining project, and uh, under um, Papua New Guinea law, the uh, gorgor um, has traditional power, and it, it basically forbids Nautilus from entering into the area. If if Nautilus disobeys the the order, uh, the indigenous peoples, as far as they're concerned. Um, have the right to destroy all of Nautilus, all of Nautilus's um, equipment, including their boats. You know, if they go into this, if they go into this um, this area that they've been um, uh, prohibited from entering. Mm. Um, and I, I don't know, I don't know. Like, uh, maybe it's no big deal to most people out there, but these these kind of acts of strength are uh, very important nowadays. You know, especially given the routine failure that Indigenous peoples have faced. In trying to work the court system and in trying to follow, you know, every single um, step and dodging every single uh, challenge that governments and corporations and uh, you know international institutions like the UN put in front of Indigenous people um, and degrading Indigenous rights all all along the way and you know make, making every single nation on the planet settle for less and you know opening up their doors to all sorts of other problems like what we see with uh, many of the the laws that are uh or court rulings that, that that come down in Canada where you know the courts will exploit them for the benefit of of Canada at the expense of indigenous peoples it's routine practice so to to go out of the system and and uh you know work on the ground is a, is a beautiful thing and it's it's something that I hope to see more of um, in the years ahead John um now we we were talking about like how so much of the media including the the alternative uh independent progressive media just tend to ignore these sorts of stories do you have an uh, an explanation for the focus of, of much of the alternative media i mean we see idle no more uh or tar sands but what, why, why does it seem to be kind of stuck in, in those areas and, and not able to report more on these sorts of stories uh, that, that you've been uh, putting out now for over nine years? Well, uh, one of the main reason, reasons is comes down to the um, political clout that uh, NGOs have. Uh, the reason that the Belamonte Dam receives so much attention um, is primarily because of Amazon Watch. Who's you know brilliant <laughs> as far as uh, you know or organizing goes? Uh, you know they've 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 really been able to 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 bring this um, you know to the international eye and, and keep it there. And with with the tar sands, it's you know indigenous environmental network and and, and many others. But you know the media actually the, the the corporate media plays a major role there too. Um, when I know none of us really like to to applaud mainstream media, but the fact is they are still quite important. And you know, you'll find that all the situations that that they cover 
tend to also get the international uh, attention as well, you know, grassroots attention especially, like what we saw with uh, with the Mi'kmaq. Um, it, it wasn't just you know a few activists or, or or the indigenous peoples themselves who were you know able to reach the international uh, community. It was because of the coverage that the media was providing. Like we see it, there's attacks going on, like what we saw with with the Mi'kmaq all over the place, and nobody pays attention to them, and you know uh, they just go by. And and that's the end of it. Uh, you know, the people are forgotten. The, the culture is forgotten, and, and that's just it. And uh, I think a lot of it has to do with the um, the attitude that publishers have, and the the motives um, when it comes to mainstream media, or, or sorry, um, non-mainstream media. Um, you know, they just they don't have their priorities in check. Um, they are not really thinking strategically about what they're doing. They're just you know trying to appeal to their readers. You know, they're they're designing content that's going to get attention, that's going to get more funds and more readers and, and whatever. Um, you know, they uh, you know uh, they care about SEO more than they care about you know search engine optimization more than they care about uh, more than they care about you know, actually telling the story. You know, uh, actually covering the news, being a responsible journalist or a responsible publisher, especially those who who you know. Um, Live on the wings of being, you know, righteous human rights-oriented, uh, you know, uh, investigative journals. Um, and there's so many that it just they don't really cover anything that's going on, uh, especially when it comes to uh, to indigenous peoples, not just general human rights struggles. But um, and it's it's an unfortunate fact, you know, um, and it's one that I've been pushing for a long time. I, you know, I've was trying to convince, you know, Truth Out, for example, who has a a big reader base. To start focusing more on indigenous peoples, you know, I wrote a uh, an analysis going over that, uh, going over the fact that for every 40 articles that we publish at IC, they publish one concerning indigenous peoples. And you know, as much as I can use that as bragging rights, it's, it's also disturbing, considering you know what we're talking about here. Um, yeah. And and hopefully media, the uh, corporate, sorry, the nonprofit media will um, start to take their work more seriously and start providing the uh, the real news um, that, that that needs to be covered not just US politics but you know struggles around the world um, we can only hope John um, intercontinental cry uh, is uh, totally supported by its readers it doesn't draw uh, corporate or foundational or other sorts of supports like that and I understand that uh, this uh, we're in the last few days of a uh, a fundraiser for your uh, organization do, do you want, do you want to talk about uh, uh, what you're tr you're hoping to accomplish with that fundraiser and uh yes well we're trying to uh, expand our work significantly um, one of the major things we're trying to do now is organize a, a new investigations arm at IC so that we can start going to uh, two indigenous peoples on the ground and bring their stories to the international community's attention um, and there's a lot of situations like the ones we've talked about here that uh, don't get any media coverage at all, e even less than what we've talked about. Um, so we want to bring their stories, you know, um, to the table. And we're also planning to take on uh, more writers um, and even possibly open an office here in Winnipeg um, so that we can, you know, really start uh, getting seriously with getting serious with our work, uh, more so than we already have. And uh, so we're running a fundraiser right now to uh, to carry that work forward, um, and also to um, 
you know, just keep our work online. Um, mm-hmm. So if anybody wants to um, perhaps uh, lend a hand, they can just visit us at uh, uh, intercontinentalcry.org or they can run over to uh, to Indiegogo, which is where our campaign is, and do a search for uh, IC Magazine, and, uh, they're, and they'll find our fundraiser there. I, I encourage people to uh, to visit our site or to just you know go to any um, uh, non non profit media site and uh, you know, encourage people to uh, encourage more coverage of Indigenous peoples and you know just support all the struggles that that you come across, even if it's just a retweet. You know it's 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 no it's no uh, no uh, assertion of authority, but it it helps to get the word out, and that's one of the most important things that uh, that uh, people can do right now. Well, John Anuanika Shirto is uh, runs the uh, website Intercontinental Cry, and uh, he is uh, also in the middle of a uh, fundraiser. He's written articles um, and a number of different reports on the uh, on the site. So, if you'd like to uh, contribute, uh, feel free to go to that website, intercontinentalcry.org. John Shirto, thank you so much for. Uh, uh, agreeing to this interview and sharing your uh, perspectives with us. For sure. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website globalresearch.ca. Since 1976, the media research program Project Censored has been vetting and compiling what they see as the top 25 most censored and underreported stories of the year. Dr. Andy Lee Roth is the Associate Director of Project Censored and one of the editors of this year's edition. He joins us now from his home in uh, San Rafael in Northern California to tell us about his organization's top picks for most censored stories of the past year. How are you doing today, Andy Lee Roth? Fine, Michael. Pleasure to join you. Okay. Now could you uh, maybe, as far as uh, this year's uh, stories are concerned, is there a particular set of themes or a pattern to the uh, to the stories that uh, we're getting yeah, this I, year? I think there is kind of a coherent narrative that, that links together the, the the news and analysis that we cover in Center 2014. Uh, Mickey Huff, the director of the project, and I decided that the subtitle of this year's book would be "Fearless." And uh, one of the ideas there, fearless speech, comes from a set of lectures that the French philosopher Michel Foucault gave in Berkeley 30 years ago, right around this time 30 years ago, where he went back to the uh, 5th century Athens notion of what we know today as free speech. And he said, uh, Foucault's analysis, if you looked at kind of the etymology and the history and the archaeology of this term, was that it would be better described as fearless speech. Because, as he noted in, in those lectures, uh, fearless speech always involves um, uh, truth-telling at the expense of those who are in power and at some risk the truth-teller. So fearless speech in fateful times the second dimension of that is, of course, the fateful times dimension. And, you know, it's obvious to anyone who's been paying attention that we we live in an era of, of uh, 
unprecedented economic inequality, uh, the environmental crisis with climate change is as great as any perhaps uh, humankind has ever faced. The scourge of war is is uh, unfortunately uh, omnipresent, even if we aren't always reminded of it by the corporate media. But the other aspect of the fateful times that Mickey and I wanted to address in this year's book is the, the threat of disenchantment and cynicism. Um, and so one aspect of this year's book that I'm really proud of, uh, and it's manifest, for instance, in the foreword by Sarah Van Gelder of, of Yes Magazine, is the idea that all the information and all the insight in the world won't matter if people become disenchanted or cynical about the world, about our communities, about our ability to act effectively in our communities and in the world. And so there's a real strong emphasis uh, in this year's book on um, positive solutions and good news stories. One of the uh, stories which is actually you list as your top pick that that seems to uh, really connect with that theme is uh, it's number one, Bradley Manning and the failure of corporate media. Um, well, yes, and, and I should begin by a, a, a clarifying and apologizing that our book went to press before Bradley Manning announced the change of, of name to Chelsea uh, Manning. So um, we aren't we aren't trying to do anything um, undermining there by using Bradley in, in, in the title of that story. Okay, thanks for that clarification. I can kind of summarize in a nutshell the difference between the corporate media and the independent media. Um, in September of, of 2013, Time Magazine ran a story called Unchecked Aggression that was looking at the military security clearance system and how it's, quote, utterly and tragically broken. Time Magazine, of course, one of the major corporate news weeklies here in the U.S. Um, and in that story, there was a graphic that lined up four faces. There was Nadal Hassan, the Fort Hood shooter. There was Army whistleblower Chelsea Manning. There was NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden. And the fourth figure was Navy Yard shooter Aaron Alexis. So basically, lumped together were mass murderers and leakers, whistleblowers. That kind of coverage is obviously uh, a form of propaganda to say who are these people and, and what company do they keep with. And so by contrast, then, you had something like Al Jazeera saying, um, you know, in response to Manning's uh, assertion that he, he went to WikiLeaks in order to make the world a better place and that he hoped that leaking those documents, those 700,000 documents, uh, would spark a domestic debate on the role of the U.S. military in foreign policy. And as Al Jazeera commented during the, the first part of Manning's trials, um, the lack of coverage raises questions whether the, as Al Jazeera calls it, the mainstream press was, quote, prepared to host the debate on U.S. interventions and foreign policy that Manning had in mind. And so with Manning, with Snowden, and with a number of other whistleblowers who we cover in this year's book, what we see is a consistent theme of, I think, it, it, it really is almost as simple as saying, uh, shooting the messenger, um, and the irony in this case is that, of course, the Time magazines and the others who have been busy belittling the characters uh, of people like Manning and Snowden are at the same time, um, without much introspection, using uh, their publishing stories based on the leaks from um, that data that Manning and Snowden have made available to the public. Okay. 
Um, I noticed there are a number of stories here relating to um, uh, well, the money system. Uh, it seems like, for example, uh, they talk about uh, number six, billionaires rising wealth intensifies poverty and inequality. Um, the richest global 1% hide trillions in tax havens. Economic concerns. Uh, the, the, what what uh, would you like to share with us? Uh, maybe is there a certain significant element? Yeah, I mean, this is a major theme in our book, and it's, uh, it's actually, um, in addition to the top 25, we put these stories together in what we call censored news clusters. And the cluster that holds all these economic stories is one written by James Tracy, um, and he called that cluster Plutocracy, Poverty, and Prosperity. And really, in some sense, what we're talking about is a plutocratic system here. Uh, and, of course, it made the corporate news in December of last year. President Obama told us that inequality was, quote, the defining challenge of our time. Um, and yet the corporate media don't really give us complete information on these things. So each of those stories you mention, the richest global 1% are hiding trillions in tax havens, um, billionaires rising wealth intensifies poverty and inequality, and another story, our number eight story, bank interests inflate global prices by 35 to 40 percent. Each of those stories are, are not being covered in the corporate media. They wouldn't be on our top 25 list if there was adequate coverage of these. So just to take one kind of concrete example, um, as Ellen Brown reports in her story on bank interests, um, that 35 to 40 percent of the cost of all the goods and services that we as consumers uh, uh, shoulder is an example of how wealth is systematically transferred from Main Street to Wall Street. So, again, when you think about corporate media coverage, what we get is coverage of how uh, the accrual of wealth is often the result of kind of scandal and wrongdoing. But what some of these stories show is that, uh, you know, as they say about apps now, it's not a bug, it's a feature, right? These, these are, we're talking about structural aspects of the society that are built to accrue wealth to those who are already wealthy at the expense of, uh, you know, the bottom 80, 90, uh, whatever percent you want to talk about. This is a good place, too, though, to talk about there is a prosperity element to this because one of the things Ellen Brown talks about in uh, her story on bank interest is there's a viable solution. Uh, a viable solution that we already have some evidence for how it works and for the fact that it does work. Um, if banks weren't private corporate entities, if we had public banking, that interest would be available as a direct reimbursement to the public. It could be used for things like you could turn the banks into public utilities and those profits could be redirected to uh, the maintenance or the expansion of public assets. Uh, so this is a this is a, a great example of what talking about a moment ago. Um, you know where there is not only a problem that the corporate media aren't adequately addressing, but there are real viable solutions that aren't being covered either. And this is why we need so badly independent press to expand kind of the spectrum of of what uh, of what we know as citizens as community members. Another uh, issue that I think it seems prominent in this crop of stories is that of food security. I know that Monsanto uh, got a couple of stories in there, uh, GMOs. 
Um, mm -hmm. And there's another one called fracking our food supply. Do you, do you want to talk about that whole issue of, of food security on the planet right now? Yeah, I mean, this is a major issue. And in some ways, to me, uh, one of the most crucial stories, you mentioned a couple of them in our list, uh, but one of the most crucial is one by um, Nafiz Ahmed uh, from The Guardian um, on food riots and whether they would be the new uh, normal. And this is really a big picture kind of deep linkage sort of story that uh, Nafiz Ahmed put together uh, based on research published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society uh, by Paul and Ann Ehrlich. And it's looking at the links between economic inequality, debt, climate change, and our dependence on fossil fuel, these stories uh, are treated as local and episodic. Uh, Nafiz Ahmed's story, again, based on this scientific uh, uh, paper by Paul and Ann Ehrlich, is saying, look, what we've got here is the crux of a global phenomenon that's at its basis a, a climate change story. Um, and by mid-century, uh, we're facing the prospect that world crop yields could fall by as much as 20 to 40 percent because of climate change alone. And that's not even to get into then, as, as you note, and as we have uh, stories, uh, our number eight story on fracking our food supply about uh, groundwater contamination. And one of the things I like to point out to my sociology students is that for many, many important goods, there are alternatives. But um, so, for instance, for fossil fuels, we have uh, we have green alternatives like wind and solar power, but for water, uh, there is no substitute. We don't have an alternative for water. And so when we have fracking, uh, hydraulic fracturing, uh, its impact on our food supply and, and especially, most fundamentally, on our water security, um, these are serious stories and the public needs to know more about them. Okay. Now, um, yeah, we just uh, have a, a couple of minutes left. There are plenty of very provocative stories here, a couple dealing with Israel, uh, one on the epidemic of birth defects in Iraq, and uh, Bush blocking an Iran nuclear deal, uh, merchants of death and nuclear weapons. It's, it's really a very rich selection. Some of these stories seem quite uh, marginal, e even within independent media. Do you have any thoughts about why they seem to be so... Like, yeah, I mean, I think that's often the kind of the... the, the $64,000 question or adjusted for inflation, whatever the figure would be. And that's a question that we actually often raise in classrooms with the students who make such mighty contributions to the Project Censored book. But let's take just one. Uh, uh, number nine on this year, the Icelanders vote to include the commons in their constitution. Um, in October of 2012, uh, the, I, I, the the people of Iceland were asked to rethink their 1944 constitution, and one of the six proposed policy changes that was put to a kind of national plebiscite was, do you want natural resources that are not privately owned to be declared national property? In other words, common property. And the overwhelming response to that question, 81% of those voting supported the Commons proposal. That story literally received no corporate coverage as far as we could track um, when, we, when we searched for coverage. The corporate media did cover the April 2013 results of an election that basically put into power, put back into power, the very parties and the very leaders who were in charge of Iceland when the country experienced its 
massive financial crash of 2008. So I think a story like the people of Iceland voting to have their, their constitution reflect the commons, that doesn't get attention here because it runs contrary to fundamental kind of political ideology, political and economic ideology of, of, of uh, the United States and of the corporate entities that run, you know, 98% of the media in the United States. Part of what we saw in Iceland in 2012 and early 2013 was a kind of very effective melding of uh, ballot box reform with organized street protests. And in the U.S., that always gets it always gets portrayed as an either-or alternative. You either do one or the other, right? Occupy with street protests, but refuse to, to go to the ballot. Or ballot box people are, you know, voting advocates are, are afraid of organizing for the street. And what we saw in Iceland was those strategies go hand-in-hand. Hand. Andy Lee Roth is Associate Director of Project Censored and co-editor of uh, this year's edition, Censored 2014, Fearless Speech in Fateful Times. Andy Lee Roth, thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much, Michael. It's a pleasure. The Center for Research on Globalization has been a major... Uh, archive for news and reports that don't make the mainstream or even a lot of the alternative press. So to here to talk about some of the uh, the major stories uh, and developments of 2013 uh, that are not getting enough attention is Michelle Chosodowski. Michelle Chosodowski is, of course, uh, an award-winning author, emeritus professor of economics at the University of Ottawa, and the founder and director of the Center for Research on Globalization. Thank you for joining us, Professor Chalkowski. Delighted to be on the program. Well, what's the, as you look at the last 12 months, uh, the, the top story that uh, comes to mind is something that's not getting adequate attention? Well, there are stories which get attention, but the media manages to turn realities upside down. And um, we have covered extensively those types of stories. What strikes me is the coverage of the Syrian uh, war, um, particularly in the last few months of 2013, when uh, the mainstream media in chorus accuses the government of having used chemical weapons against his own people when all the evidence suggests and confirms that the chemical weapons attack of August 21 was conducted by Al-Qaeda-affiliated rebels. And moreover, these Al-Qaeda-affiliated rebels were supported directly or indirectly by the United States. When I say indirectly, it was through Turkey, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia primarily. And we know that this is the case. And we know also that under international law, if you hire killers to go in and kill, you are liable for prosecution uh, under, you know, under all the various conventions that govern war crimes. And we're dealing with an invasion and not a civil war. I think that was one of the, that's one of the key concepts which has characterized 2013 
And I think people are increasingly realizing that that it is not a civil war, it is an invasion. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I noticed that uh, another uh, story theme that uh, has been portrayed uh, prominently on uh, global research is the, the Fukushima disaster. Uh, you have an entire iBook dedicated to it, and I know that uh, it's by far the most popular uh, story that I've posted to the, uh, the, inter- to, the to your site has been the, the one story we did on the Fukushima cover-up. Do you, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, what you see as being uh, significant about that event? Well, Fukushima coverage has been extensive, both uh, both in the independent media as well as in the corporate media. But at the same time, there's a subtle cover-up. It's not, uh, it's not something which uh, emerges in 2013. Um, the, the online reader that we prepared dates back to January 2012, in other words, two years ago. Um, and what we knew really at the outset of the crisis is now sort of surfacing. Um, we, we knew that the food chain in Japan had been contaminated, but much more seriously, there were other concurrent events uh, that even building materials were contaminated because they came from a plant which was close to Fukushima. We now can confirm that wildlife is contaminated in the northern Pacific region. TEPCO, the you know the electricity company of Japan, has dumped plutonium radioactive waste into the Pacific Ocean. There's camouflage of the, the cleanup operations of the role of organized crime and the contracts which are granted by big construction companies, we're dealing with a global crisis, a a process of worldwide uh, nuclear radiation, a nuclear war without a war. Mm -hmm. Now, what about uh, another, uh, the whole topic of globalization? I know that's a a huge sector, but we have the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, the the CETA. What, What are some of the main developments around this whole globalization of the economy and, and where things are, are moving forward? Well, I, I think that's also probably one of the major themes which has characterized the global economy. It's the extension of, the, of what emerged, you know, in the late 90s or the mid-90s with the, the World Trade Organization and, and the various trade agreements um, to really uh, encompass practically the entire world. Uh, There's a trade uh, agreement negotiated um, between the United States and the European Union. There's there's another trade agreement negotiated between Canada and the European Union. And then there's a trade agreement, the the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, which which uh, essentially is in, encompasses a number of, of countries in, in the Asia-Pacific um, region, so that what is unfolding is, is a global uh, area of U.S., uh, of Anglo-American dominance throughout the world, um, because these trade agreements, they, they're not really trade agreements at all. They, they pertain to intellectual property. They pertain to... Um, fiscal, um, you know, fiscal policy, the fact that companies can come in into a country 
and set up a private university and start asking for, you know, for subsidies from the state. Uh, so it, it really is an encroachment on sovereignty which is occurring, um, and it, it, these, uh, these uh, trade agreements uh, are looked upon somewhat separately. You know, you, you look at the TTP and its logic, then you look at, you know, you look at the, the Canadian project, but you don't necessarily look at the, the process of integration which takes place when all these uh, agreements are implemented simultaneously, in effect, as part of, uh, of the same agenda. And what is disturbing, of course, is the fact that they're negotiated behind closed doors, they're secret agreements, nobody knows about them. And mind you, that is a little bit the logic of the WTO, which was signed uh, in 1995, well, well, it was signed in late 1994 uh, by officials and negotiators, and it was not even known to, uh, to uh, members of parliament or even, in some cases, heads of state and heads of government. And it was essentially um, uh, some form of, well, you can talk about world government, but this world government really bypasses, in, in essence, bypasses all the, the institutions of the national state. And so we're, we're dealing with essentially a process of building an empire through the imposition of tra so-called trade agreements. And as I said, it's not trade which is at stake. It's investment, it's ownership, um, it's uh, macroeconomic policy, it's social policy, um, which, um, uh, which are, is built into, these, uh, into the clauses of these trade deals. Professor Chostanovsky, just maybe one more uh, theme would be the whole issue of the, the U.S.-NATO war agenda. As you mentioned, uh, there, there was a lead-up to what was supposed to be uh, an invasion of Syria, which uh, didn't uh, pan out, or apparently did. It was either canceled or postponed. Uh, there's the U.S.-China pivot. Uh, what has 2013 told us about uh, what US -NATO, the, the U.S.-NATO war agenda and, and what's on the horizon? Well, I, I think that what we have witnessed in 2013 is a global military agenda, namely modes of intervention, not necessarily theater wars, are being implemented in all major regions of the world. What is at stake in Africa is the process of destabilization of the nation state. It's literally destroying country after country. And we're, we're not talking about one or two countries. We're talking about the whole belt of Central Africa, from Ivory Coast right to Somalia. And all this is presented through the corporate media as being part of humanitarian endeavors, interventions which are required to safeguard the interests of governments and so on, or come to the rescue of civilians, when in fact they, these are mechanisms which destabilize countries and allow for greater access of Western capital to resources. But I should mention that what is at stake also um, is the confrontation between the Western military alliance on the one hand, in other words, the United States, NATO, Israel, and the alliance between China and Russia. Uh, this is particularly true in the Middle East, and uh, certainly China and Russia played an important role in Syria. But if you look in, in the Far East, you can see that there's also a confrontation. And the confrontation is the United States, Japan, South Korea, which constitute a formidable military bloc, 
and they're not part of NATO per se. They have links to NATO. And, of course, China, and that's the whole basis of the Asian pivot. I should mention also, of course, Australia, which is also an important military actor, so that uh, you, you have processes of militarization in the Far East and, and Southeast Asia. On the one hand, you have the sending in of special forces, you know, intelligence operators into Africa, triggering civil wars, but essentially the background is one of, of building a global empire. Uh, and I think what troubles me in particular is the fact that this agenda is not the object of any kind of anti-war activism. Uh, and in fact, exactly the opposite, that many people in the anti-war movement now, in a sense, aligning themselves with the responsibility to protect humanitarian mandate, they will say we are against the war, but we support the war on terrorism without understanding that the war on terrorism is a mechanism of destabilizing countries. And this is true particularly in, it was true in Libya and it's also true in Syria, where so-called progressives will pay lip service to the so-called opposition or opposition forces in, in Syria without understanding that these opposition forces are largely integrated by death squads who are trained, uh, they're trained in Saudi Arabia and Qatar, they're financed directly by, by NATO countries, including the United States, Turkey, and uh, they are sent in with, with the mandate to kill civilians and create atrocities, which are then blamed on the Syrian government is the diabolical process of going in, killing people, and then using the mass casualty events uh, and civilian deaths as a pretext to intervene on humanitarian grounds. Well, I think we're going to have to leave it there, uh, Professor Chostos. We want to thank you very much for those insights as well as your ongoing analysis of you and your uh, various authors and contributors to the Global Research website. Uh, thank you so much for sharing them with us, and uh, Happy New Year. Thank you very much. Delighted to be on the program. And uh, we've been speaking with Professor Michelle Chosodovsky, who is the uh, President and Director of the Center for Research on Globalization, and uh, the Emeritus Professor of Economics at the University of Ottawa. You can uh, find his writings at globalresearch.ca. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour and our special look at the most underreported and important stories of 2013. If you'd like more details about the topics covered on this program, please visit intercontinentalcry.org, projectcensored.org, and globalresearch.ca. And please consider donating generously to these and other independent media outlets, including your local community radio station. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.